Hi, you're listening to Shabbat Replay on Contact High, a podcast from Mishkan, Chicago. We're releasing our sermons so that no matter where you were Friday, you can enjoy a piece of Shabbat today. A few years ago, when I was in rabbinical school, I was in a class with a number of students from the Christian seminary right across the street from my Jewish seminary. And the students were predominantly Black women who had come to take this class that was open to students from multiple seminaries. So one day, a few weeks after the Pittsburgh shooting, one of them came to class pretty rattled. And she said she had forgotten her ID that day and that the security guard at my Jewish seminary had given her bag and her a bit more of a thorough search than usual before letting her in. And she shared that that experience and the general experience of walking into our building and having to go through this security made her feel uncomfortable. uncomfortable. It made her feel out of place. And that having that armed uniformed guard and the metal detectors at the entrance of the building, it made her feel unsafe coming into our space. So I had until that moment actually felt the opposite about the guards that especially just a few weeks after the worst attack on the Jewish community on American soil, those guards made me feel safer. So the next semester, I took a class at the Christian seminary going back across the street. And on the first day of the semester, I walked into the building and walked right up to the security guard, swiped my ID and the thing that said like IDs here and tried to hand over my bag. And the security guard says to me, no, nah, no, nah, don't worry about it. What's your name? What class are you going to? So I tell them, I'm going to healing from intergenerational trauma and Buddhist Dharma, which honestly is the class I was going to, which is a little ironic for this story. And they point me on my way. The next week, I come up to the security guard for class again, and I'm prepared to swipe my ID. And as I'm even walking towards the desk, the guard says to me, ah, don't worry about it. I know you, you're in the Bontes class. And off I went. So the difference between these two schools right across the street from each other could not have been more different. The methods that they use to keep their students and their buildings safe, it could not have been more different. My Jewish and predominantly white school had armed guards at the door, giving me and us the illusion of safety while the Christian multiracial seminary right across the street had people at the door to welcome you, to point you in the right direction. Did the guards and the barricades and the metal detectors actually make us any safer in our school? Or did they just make students, faculty, and visitors of color feel unwelcome and unsafe? The fear that my classmates felt coming into my school and encountering uniformed armed security was not an imagined fear. It was the result of decades, even centuries of police violence that disproportionately harms black and brown people. As a white person, I don't fear for my life when I interact with someone in uniform, which is a position of incredible privilege. I know that. And I know that it is something that feels very different for the many black Jews and people of color in our community and in other communities and for trans and non-binary people who are also disproportionately targeted and harmed by police. The current narrative in many Jewish communities and in many white communities is that we need police to keep us safe. 
And if you had asked me several years ago if I agree, I would have said yes. But though I know I am late to this game, I think we've been wrong all along. That we've been responsible for upholding a system that has killed more than a thousand people a year for the last five years. That law enforcement and guns and armed security, these things actually are not keeping us safe. We've been throwing more and more and more money at the policing system for decades, and we are not getting any safer. What is keeping us safe is knowing each other. As I mentioned earlier, yesterday, the city of Chicago released body cam footage from the murder of Adam Toledo, a 13-year-old kid who was shot and killed by cops last month. Less than a week ago, just since our last Shabbat together, Dante Wright was murdered in a routine traffic stop by a cop who had been on the force for 26 years. And these are just two of the more than 260 people who have been killed by police just since 2021 started. 260 people already in this year. That Derek Chauvin is currently standing trial for murder is remarkable because it is so rare. So if you are feeling angry or sad or terribly afraid or just confused what to do, I am with you. I am so angry too. And there are no words for the grief of Dante Wright's family and Adam Toledo's, and Laquan McDonald, and Richard Brooks, and Brianna Taylor, and Daniel Prude, and George Floyd, and so many other families who have lost their loved ones to police brutality. Each of these people who was killed had friends and family and people who feel their absence every day, and whose own trauma, their own fear of police has been further compounded by the murder of their loved ones. So, what do we do when the people who are tasked with protecting us, as well-intentioned as they might be, end up hurting the very people they're supposed to protect? Do we chalk it up again and again, each individual situation as a flawed individual who made a mistake or who chose violence too easily? Do we say each case is individual? Or do we acknowledge that something in this system is fundamentally flawed. Let's back up for a second. This week's selection of laws, also known as a Parsha, talk about what happens when a person has a skin affliction known as tarat, which we often mistranslate as leprosy. And the Parsha goes into details about types of pus and crusting and hair and all sorts of like really gross stuff that I'm not going to get into because you might be eating dinner now. On the surface, it seems like tzara'at is understood by the Torah as an infectious disease. But already in the earliest biblical commentary, tzara'at is understood and treated as a sign of moral sin. The understanding is that sarat is what happens to someone who engaged in slanderous gossip. So a person who gets sarat is someone who endangered society through harmful speech, through fomenting divisions between people, and who now has that danger that they created manifested in their own body. 
The Taurus prescription for someone with this affliction is that they need to be quarantined away from the rest of the community, that they have to be removed from society, put outside the gates to be only with other people with Zarat. But the way that this policing is affected, or at least the way that the Torah lays it out, we can't know for sure it was actually affected, is very different from our model in which we call in armed outsiders who we don't know and who don't know anything about us other than the biases they carry. The people responsible for policing Tzarat in the Torah are the priests. They're the people who Israelites know personally who are part of the community themselves. The person who comes to check you out when you think you might have tzarat is the same person you see when you bring a sacrifice, when you celebrate a festival, when you mark a life cycle. And they're also the person you engage with when you are going through a forgiveness process if you've messed up. That last part is really critical, right? The essential role of police, of priests, excuse me, the essential role of priests, though they do some policing, is not policing. Their essential role is to keep people alive and together in community, even when that means they need to effect some temporary removal. Now, the laws of Tzarat are not perfect, certainly, but they are a good start for thinking about a community safety model. So if we try to mirror the Torah system onto our own, we can see all the ways that we are actually falling short of the standard that the Torah sets. In most places, the people who show up when we dial 911, or who we see as we move about the world, are not the same people who live in our communities who are part of our daily lives, even for those of us who know and love people in the police force. Your uncle or sister is not the police who shows up when you call the police. The people we encounter in the world as police are there for the sake of law enforcement. They're not the people you invite to your baby naming or your barbecue or who you talk to about how you're trying to get better. The priests are responsible for determining when someone poses a threat to the community, yes but they are also responsible for effecting the rituals to welcome the person back into society and into relationship with God after they've been removed. The priest's role is to create and enact restorative justice. American police have an essentially different role. They are hired and trained and managed by a system that is at very best only tenuously connected to the people that the force exists to protect and serve, right? There is only at best a tenuous connection between us and our law enforcement. The police in America are heavily militarized. They're trained to see people as threats and to reach for a weapon when they feel threatened. Those are the only tools they are given. That we call them law enforcement and not law protection teaches us that this institution is fundamentally different from the Torah system. Systemic racism in all of its forms, in policing, yes, and also in healthcare and education and housing, this is the civil rights crisis of our time. Some of us, not me, were around for the first civil rights movement in the 1960s. You already know what to do. If you were not alive then, as I was not, and you've been wondering, how would I have reacted if I had had a chance to be part of the civil rights movement? Now is your chance. 
Now's your time to do something. We have an opportunity here in Chicago right now on the issue of policing to take an important step towards undoing unjust and racist systems and policies. So let me tell you about it. It's actually a fight that Mishkan has been in for years. Through our partnership with the Jewish Council on Urban Affairs, known as JCUA, we've worked on GAPA, the Grassroots Alliance for Police Accountability. And in the last couple of months, in the face of the mayor's continued inaction and broken promises about creating police reform, the organizers behind GAPA and behind the Civilian Police Accountability Council, known as CPAC, came together to write and propose a new city ordinance on police accountability. The ordinance, fancy language for legislation, is the result of years of Black-led organizing and direct involvement and input from hundreds of stakeholders and the heroic efforts of community organizing by bodies that represent tens of thousands of Chicagoans. The ordinance is formally known as the Empowering Communities for Public Safety Act, but it's informally known as the People's Ordinance because it was created by and belongs to all of us. It would fundamentally change policing in Chicago to give us, the people, more power and oversight over police. In the words of the organizers of this ordinance, the coalitions are made up of churches and temples and trade unions and community-based organizations. And they have been united to give the people of Chicago a decisive voice in policing and in public safety. This ordinance represents the best thinking on police accountability from Chicagoans and it shifts the power of policing to people to keep their own communities safe. The People's Ordinance will not fix all aspects of the broken system of policing in our city, nor in this country. It will hopefully make violent encounters between police and civilians less frequent, and it will give us power to hold police accountability when they cause harm. Without police accountability, the cost falls to us of these encounters. You, me, literally, we are paying for the lack of police accountability and oversight to the tune of more than half a billion dollars in Chicago since 2005 to settle lawsuits against police officers. That half a billion dollars that the city is paying out because we don't have a system for holding police accountable other than to pay people off is funded by our tax dollars. It's funded by dollars that could have gone towards healthcare or education or infrastructure or the arts or that we simply could have not paid in taxes. The ordinance has been ready for vote for the last few months and right now it's stalled in the public safety committee of the Chicago City Council. It was supposed to be voted on today and the mayor pressured the head of the council not to bring it to vote. So if you haven't already, please get in touch with your alder person and let them know that you support this ordinance and you want them to, that you want them to lean on Alderman Talia Farrow who leads the public safety committee and to lean on the mayor to bring this thing to a vote. If you wanna learn more about the ordinance itself because I have given you only the most general of overviews, to talk more about the impact it would have, please join us after services for a chance to debrief, to go into more detail, to be in conversation with our justice leaders who have been working on this campaign for several years. The People's Ordinance is an important first step 
a very delayed first step, towards building a safer and more just Chicago in line with the vision of the Torah. The Torah's vision is, to recap, that we should have people who are actually part of the community involved in the policing. And the Torah also says in the book of Dvarim, set for yourself judges and public safety officers to govern the people with due justice. And two verses later, a verse we may have heard, justice, justice, you shall pursue. Jewish tradition firmly believes that if we wanna reduce police brutality, we have to increase police accountability. How? The Midrash on this verse teaches that police officers should be like judges and that they carry their deeds, carry out their deeds facing the rod and the whip. The same tools that they would use to enforce the laws, they have to feel accountable to. They have to know that they are held to the same standards as the people they are policing so that the ones who meet out punishment should not warrant it themselves, the Midrash says. In other words, police should operate with a clear awareness of their accountability for their actions, because if they were to stray from justice, they would need to face the same consequences as anyone else. The essential role of those tasked with enforcing laws in Jewish tradition is indeed to protect and serve their community and God. And Jewish tradition recognizes that even those with the most noble and holy intentions to help find themselves in a system that relies on violence and bodily control. Jewish tradition recognizes that the goal of protecting the law can too easily push aside the goal of protecting people. And when that's allowed to happen in an environment with little to no accountability, when police are only given tools of violence and more training in using those tools than in diffusing a situation, we see people who continue to act first and ask later. We see people killed literally by the thousands by those who are sworn to protect them. Public safety in Jewish tradition relies on community safety models in which those tasked with enforcing the rules are also those who participate in every aspect of our lives and who support long-term restorative justice. So I hope that you will take action to support the police ordinance, the people's ordinance. And I hope that you will stick around for all of the work that we have to do after that ordinance passes to create more holistic public safety. Again, in the words of Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, when it comes to injustice in our society, few are guilty, but all are responsible. Responsibility, he writes, is the capability of being called upon to answer or to make amends without necessarily being directly connected with or involved in a criminal act, end quote. I am not guilty of the murders of Dante Wright or Adam Toledo or George Floyd or any of the other people killed by police this year, but I am responsible and that responsibility requires me to advocate for police reform now and to imagine a redemptive future, one in which we do not need to outsource our protection to an other, but rather are all engaged together in protecting and serving and caring for each other and across our diverse, beautiful city and country. Shabbat Shalom.
You've been listening to Shabbat Replay on Contact High, a podcast from Mishkan, Chicago. If you enjoyed this sermon and want to join us live, tune in to Shabbat services through Facebook most Fridays of the month and through Zoom two Saturday mornings a month. Our schedule of services and programs can be found at mishkanchicago.org events, where there's also a link to donate and support our work. And you can visit us on Facebook or Instagram at Mishkan Chicago. Until then, please feel free to subscribe and leave us a review. As always, we want to hear from you. This episode has been brought to you by me, Zach Weinberg, our editor and producer, Hannah Rehack, our rabbinical team, Rabbis Lizzie Heideman and Dina Cowens, and our director of communications, Ashley Donahue. On behalf of Teen Mishkan, thanks for tuning in. Mm-hmm.